What once was a small, quiet town turned into a place of horrors overnight when a mysterious fire began to ignite and burn beneath this town in its coal mines. Mystery, death, and destruction engulfed this small town, and its inhabitants fled in fear for their lives. Still today, rumors circulate about the cause of this disaster. Was it human error? Was it greed or violence? Or was there something more dark and evil lurking beneath the surface of this town? Welcome to Destination Terror, your passport to the scariest places in the world. From haunted hotels to locations of unexplained creature sightings, we will travel to places that will provide excitement, adventure, and horror. Today we are discussing Centralia, Pennsylvania, a ghost town with fires that have been burning in its burrows for over 50 years. So if you are into travel and all things scary, listen close and you might just discover your next exciting adventure destination. But hopefully, not your final destination. Destination Terror is an EerieCast original podcast, hosted by me, Carmen Carrion. If you would like to send us a suggestion or submit a story with your own experience, you can email them to carmencarrion at gmail.com or follow me on Twitter at carmencarrion. If you enjoy the show, please follow and rate Destination Terror on Spotify and Apple Podcasts to help us grow. Also, check out EerieCast.com for more scary podcasts, such as Tales from the Break Room, featuring allegedly true and terrifying stories that happened on the job. It was particularly cold that night on October 17, 1868 when Alexander Ray was heading from Centralia to Mount Carmel. His buggy suddenly stopped when he thought he heard someone following him. He climbed out of his buggy and was greeted by three men. He didn't even get a chance to speak before they tackled him and tied him to a tree. What is the meaning of this? Alexander asked furiously. He suddenly felt a hot burning sensation coming from his stomach. He had been shot by one of the men. He then felt a blade touch his lips. The same man that had shot him began to slowly cut one side of his mouth open, making a straight line cut all the way across until he hit Alexander's jaw. He then proceeded to do the same thing on the other side until his bottom jaw was just hanging. Then with one fell swoop, he sliced Alexander's head in half, leaving only the bottom half of his jaw. They untied his body and let it flop to the ground. They then fled the scene. Exactly one year later, three different men would attempt to do the same thing to Catholic priest Father Daniel Ignatius McDermott. Right as they were bringing the blade of a knife to his mouth, the priest turned into something that wasn't quite human, but looked more demonic. I jolted awake from the dream just as my alarm went off. I sat there for a minute processing what just happened. Who were those men in my dreams? Oh well, I couldn't let it bother me. Besides, I'm sure it was nothing. 
I got up and started getting ready for work, like it was any other day. It was October 1st, 1961, and that is the day that would change my life forever. I went into work that day, not really expecting anything. It was typically slower this time of year, due to the cold weather. So my co-workers and I were all just taking it easy, cleaning up around the fire station. Then suddenly we got a call to come check out something strange going on out in the woods at the edge of town. Since it didn't seem to be anything serious, I thought it was best if just me and one other guy went to go check it out. When we got to the edge of the woods, we were immediately hit with the smell of death. We started to make our way into the woods, looking in every direction for anything amiss. As we went further into the woods, the smell kept getting stronger, until we finally came upon what was causing the smell. It seemed to be a badly decomposing deer carcass, which usually wouldn't be anything out of the ordinary. But this deer head was cut in half, leaving only the bottom half of it. I immediately remembered my dream and ran behind a tree to throw up. That couldn't have been a coincidence, but why did I even dream about something like that? And who or what would do something like this? Brian, who had accompanied me, walked over. Hey, you alright? I nodded my head and stood back up. This is just bizarre. What reason would someone have to do something like this? I asked. Brian just shook his head. We bagged up the carcass to dispose of it, and we went back to the fire department. Mark, Kevin, Robert, and James were all waiting on us to get back, so we could tell them what it was. I immediately went upstairs to get a drink, while Brian told them about it. I couldn't get the image out of my head. I mean, what in the world could that have meant? And who could have done it? I walked back downstairs and everyone started looking at me. I knew that I'd have to tell them about the dream that I had. Are you going to be okay, Paul? You're normally not the type to get squeamish at stuff like that. Brian and the guys all started motioning to me to sit down at the table we had set up. We all sat down and I started explaining to them the dream that I had had this morning and how the deer carcass we saw matched exactly what had happened to the two men in my dream. I don't know who they were, but something told me they were important to our town's history. Everyone just sat there and looked at me for a minute. Then Mark spoke up. I don't know, man. Sounds like just a weird coincidence to me. He shrugged his shoulders, then leaned back in his chair. I lowered my head, showing them I didn't want to talk about it anymore. Over the next week, we noticed the weather getting unusually warm. And on October 10th, we got another call about someone seeing smoke coming from the highway. We decided all six of us should go this time, so we split up in the teams of three and took two trucks in case it was a wildfire. We arrived on the scene, and on the side of the road was a small car in flames. Mark and I got out of the truck to go make sure no one was in the car, while the rest of the men got the hoses ready to put the fire out. When Mark and I walked up to the car, we noticed that the cab was the only part of the car on fire. When we got to the driver's side door, we noticed the window was down, 
and there was a charred hand sticking out of it. As soon as we saw that, we both ran back to the trucks to help the rest of the men get the hoses to put the fire out. We hooked it up to the nearest fire hydrant and began blasting it with water. It took about 20 minutes to put the fire completely out. By the time it was out, the sheriff's department had arrived. Their investigation was short. It looked like whoever the victim may be, they were obviously female. But the body was burned too badly to make out any other details about her. As they were examining the body, an ambulance arrived on the scene to take it away. They couldn't find any hints of arson because there were no traces of combustibles inside the cab of the car that could have started the fire. The engine bay and the trunk were also untouched, so it wasn't any sort of engine fire, and it couldn't have started from the gas tank. This case was leaving everyone stumped. It was almost like the woman just spontaneously combusted. But there was no way that was possible. They finally came to the conclusion that it was probably just some sort of freak accident, or the woman had committed suicide. We helped clean up the wreckage and went back to the station. The rest of the day was quiet, and not much else happened. It seemed like as each day passed, it was getting warmer and warmer. On October 15th, we got another call about some smoke coming from the woods in between the town's landfill and cemetery. No doubt that this time it was a wildfire. There was no denying it. We all arrived at the scene and couldn't find the fire immediately, so we started making our way into the woods to search it out. We had walked for about 10 minutes when we came out into an opening. There was a circle of tree stumps still smoldering, and in the middle was a single tree left untouched. As we were walking up to the scene, we caught an odor that smelled very similar to what we had smelled the day before when we were putting out the car fire. It smelled like burning flesh. We walked around the other side of the tree, and hanging there tied up was the body of another woman. She was burned just as badly as the woman the day before. We looked for signs of arson, but just like before, it looked like the woman had spontaneously combusted. But that wasn't the only thing. Her head was cut the exact same way the deer's head was that we had found a few days earlier. This episode is sponsored by June's Journey. What is horror to you? Monsters? Murder? Mystery? Well, if human monsters are your thing, June's Journey is the game for you, albeit in a more lighthearted tone. June's Journey is a hidden object game with a thrilling murder mystery set in the Roaring Twenties. You play as June on the hunt for your sister's murderer. Discover clues through exciting hidden object scenes with beautiful and atmospheric illustrations and music. Victory brings you closer to new plot points and suspenseful answers. When not hunting for clues, you can customize your own luxurious estate island with gardens, buildings, and decor. Or chat and play with or against other players too in the Detective Club, where you could even put your skills to the test in the Detective League. June's journey is both relaxing and fun to play with my busy schedule, I find it's the perfect game to pick up and play whenever I've got a free moment. 
It doesn't demand too much time, and it's pretty satisfying solving puzzles quickly and unlocking new clues. Can you crack the case? Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Centralia, Pennsylvania was a bustling small town a century ago, with a thriving mining industry, stores, and citizens. Its 1,200 residents worked, played, and lived in close proximity to one another, while being powered by coal from nearby mines for their homes and economy. The town is much different now. The streets of Centralia are deserted. Where a rich community once thrived, the majority of its structures are gone, and smoke now drifts down roadways covered in graffiti. The town which was once bustling is now deserted. The reason for the town's desertion is a mine fire that has been raging beneath Centralia's empty streets for more than 50 years, destroying a community and forcing many of its citizens into poverty and eviction. Although coal seam fires are not new, the one in Centralia is the worst in the U.S. and among the most destructive in human history. Centralia has a long history as a mining hub before the 1962 fire. The town was formed when mining started in the 1850s and is home to a major anthracite coal resource. Centralia's rough-and-tumble people and seedier side were defined by mining. Members of the Molly Maguires, a secret society that originated in Ireland, traveled to American coal mines with the Irish immigrants who lived in the town during the 1860s. The Molly Maguires are thought to have carried out a wave of violence in Centralia at that time. From the assassination of the town's founder, Alexander Ray, to the passing of the region's first priest, the Molly Maguires were called to account for all of it. Some think the Mollies were responsible, while others think they were set up by the mine owners, who were afraid the Mollies and other groups would organize the mine workers into unions. The crime wave eventually came to an end, following a ruthless attempt to control the Mollies and the execution of some of the gang's alleged leaders in 1877. The conflict did not end Centralia's reliance on mining. More than 2,700 individuals lived there in 1890, the majority of them miners or members of their families. And while the Great Depression and stock market crash dealt Centralia's coal industry a serious hit, the community was nevertheless able to survive. It took a tragedy to destroy the town, but it's not entirely clear how the tragedy began. It seems to have started with the Centralia landfill an abandoned mine pit that had been converted into a garbage dump in 1962. The Municipal Council sought a solution to the problems of rats and offensive odors in Centralia, which was home to many unregulated landfills. The Centralia City Council suggested in May 1962 that the neighborhood dump be cleaned up 
and time for Memorial Day celebrations. Centralia Council's strategy for cleaning up a landfill was to set it on fire. It is believed that the Centralia dump fire started a much bigger mine fire beneath the town. Despite the fact that there are different theories about how the fire started. Soon, a coal seam beneath Centralia caught fire. The local mines were forced to close due to unsafe carbon monoxide levels after it spread to mine tunnels beneath town streets. There were several unsuccessful attempts to excavate and extinguish the fire. Ironically, the legacy of the mining that for so many years characterized Centralia is the cause. It's possible that one, many, or all of the area's abandoned mine tunnels are contributing to the fire. However, it would be extremely expensive and probably impossible to identify which ones do so and to completely block off all of them. The city's foundation heated up over time, reaching temperatures of exceeding 900 degrees Fahrenheit in certain places. Gas-filled basements and sinkholes both released smoke. Homes started to tilt, and locals started to report health issues. It's thought that graves in the two cemeteries of the town fell into the raging inferno below them. A 12-year-old boy narrowly escaped death earlier that year when he slipped into a sudden sinkhole caused by the fire. For Centralia, it was already too late. Congress chose to pay the inhabitants to leave by buying them out rather than putting out the fire. Then in 1992, Pennsylvania took action to permanently expel the holdouts. The entire city of Centralia was demolished and its zip code was removed. Due to a court order, seven occupants are still present. They are not permitted to transfer or sell their property. Despite possibly being one of Pennsylvania's least popular and unlikely tourist destinations, a trip to Centralia, Pennsylvania is however worthwhile. The magnificent culture or the fascinating historical sites aren't what bring tourists to this remote ghost town. It's more the lack of sites to visit. In Pennsylvania, Centralia is a contemporary ghost town. So what is the town's history, and what can one do in Centralia, Pennsylvania? Many of Centralia's buildings have been demolished over the past 20 years. But in Centralia, there are still things to do. As you cross the mountains from the nearby town of Ashland, you'll come to a sign that still welcomes you to the borough of Centralia. There are three very well-kept cemeteries just down the road. It's rumored that smoke from the fire occasionally rises through the ground in the Odd Fellows Cemetery to your right, creating a very unsettling scene. The fence enclosing the cemetery and many of the gravestones, however, are intriguing to view, even if there isn't any smoke, since they demonstrate how the fire has altered the surrounding area. The fire is believed to have begun in the area behind Odd Fellows Cemetery. The burned dirt and the plant life that has persisted in this location are unmistakable signs of the fire's effects. The area is covered in metal venting tubes, yet on most days, it's difficult to discern the actual fire. Centralia almost has the appearance of a town that has been decimated by war as you proceed downward into the town center 
Roads that formerly led to peaceful residential streets are now inaccessible. Curbs, walkways, and front steps can still be seen as you drive down these lonely avenues, but many of them have been tipped over by the force of the fire. The few remaining homes are scattered across the town in outlying areas, their surroundings being made up of vacant lots where happy families formerly lived. The stunning Assumption of the Blessed Virgin Mary Ukrainian Greek Catholic Church, which is perched on a hill above town and still hosts weekly services, is the only source of color in Centralia. It was one of the five churches in the town when it originally began, and it's the only one that is still there. Also worth seeing is the former Veterans Memorial, which still has a chain-link fence, and the base where the Veterans Memorial statue once stood. There was also a time capsule buried in the park in 1966, but it was removed in 2014. Graffiti Highway used to be the main draw in Centralia. Unfortunately, instead of being protected as a historic landmark as it should have been in April 2020, this old route was buried in dirt as a result of poor site management. On what was originally Route 61, the road that still connects Ashland and Centralia, was situated the graffiti highway in Centralia. However, the numerous and expensive repairs required by the fire caused Route 61 to be permanently diverted around the area in 1994. A three-quarter mile section of the deserted road next to St. Ignatius Cemetery was all that was left, and it demonstrated the tremendous strength of the underground fire. Graffiti was added on the road over time. There were some wise words and some passages that might have qualified as works of art. Sadly, a sizable portion of the graffiti was rather offensive. Graffiti Highway, however, was the finest location to view signs of the damage caused by the underground fire before it was buried in earth. It only appeared to be an overgrown deserted road for a significant stretch of the roadway akin to the abandoned PA Turnpike at Breezewood. However, a big crack that cut across the road was there in the midst of the demolished area. A short way further down the road, an asphalt wall measuring three feet high collapsed. It resembled a scene from an action movie, in many respects, rather than a tranquil country road. Occasionally, Reports claim that smoke could still be seen coming from the ground in this location, although those claims dwindled over time as the fire grew deeper beneath. It's utterly heartbreaking what's happened to Centralia during the past 50 years. Visits are an excellent way to learn about the destructive force of nature. Even with the loss of Graffiti Highway, a trip to Centralia, Pennsylvania is unquestionably worthwhile despite the fact that it may be one of Pennsylvania's least likely and least well-publicized tourist destinations. It would definitely be a destination of terror. 
Save big money when you start your next project today at Menards. Convert your current recessed lighting with energy-saving LED downlights from Fight Electric. They're bright and install easily in just minutes. They also go from regular lighting to nightlight mode with just a simple flip of a switch. Save big on all Fight Lighting products now at Menards. Shop our lighting options today in-store and on Menards.com. Save big money at Menards. I started to break out into a cold sweat. What was happening? And why was it happening? We called an ambulance out, and as soon as we cleaned up the scene, everyone went back to the station. Except me. I wanted to get to the bottom of this and figure out why it was happening. I went to our town library and looked around to see if I could find anything on our history. I finally found a book that was titled, The Centralia Curse. I sat down at one of the tables and began to read. The book talked about the town's origin and told about the murder of the founder whose name was Alexander Ray and the assault of the Catholic priest named Daniel Ignatius McDermott. It immediately hit me. Those were the two men in my dream. I kept reading. I read about how they were murdered and assaulted by this secret society called the Molly Maguires and how after the priest was assaulted, it left him permanently scarred along his face. And for that, he cursed the whole town. And up until now, nothing of consequence had been happening to this town. I immediately knew it was the curse of the priest that was causing all of this. But why is it happening now? And why did he curse the whole town for it? I kept reading on to see if I could find anything else that would help me figure out this curse. I came upon a section detailing more about the Molly Maguires and found that the leader that had assaulted the priest was named Patrick Edwards. Edwards is my last name. I'm sure it's just a coincidence. There's no way I'm related to someone like that. I stood up from the table and quickly made my way out of the library. And instead of going back to the fire station, I went straight to my parents' house. I needed to get to the bottom of this and figure out how to stop it. I drove to my parents and knocked on the door. My dad answered. Hey, aren't you supposed to be at work? He smiled and chuckled a little. Yeah, but I'm kind of dealing with something important, and I need to ask you a few questions about our family history. My dad could tell that I was very serious and gestured for me to come inside. He had my mom fix us some coffee, and we went and sat in his office so we could have our privacy. I explained to him everything that's been happening over the past week. The dead deer, the random car fire, the weird sacrificial incident that happened in the woods, and the temperature rising rapidly. And I told him about me going to the library and looking into our town history. The man that cursed the town, he was assaulted by a man named Patrick Edwards. Does his name sound familiar? My father got a very strange look on his face. He sat there for a minute before speaking. This isn't how I wanted you to find out about our family history, but you are going to have to find out at some point. He then proceeded to tell me that Patrick Edwards was one of our great ancestors, 
who wasn't so great. He committed a lot of various crimes, including the assault on the priest. He was eventually found and executed for his crimes. Do you think the curse the priest put on the town has something to do with the strange occurrences that are going on? I asked him anxiously. I don't know, son. It's very likely, though. And if it is, you'll need to find a way to break the curse to stop it. I left my parents' house, more confused than when I'd arrived. Either way, I needed to find a way to break the curse on the town before anything else happened. I headed back to the fire department and went straight to bed. It was about 3 a.m. on the 17th when we got a call about someone smelling something burning. We went to the area where the report had been made. It was at the same place that we found the woman tied to the tree. Except this time, there were numerous people being held captive. There were women and even children. Some of them it was too late to save. Their charred bodies were hanging from the trees, but there was more than a dozen still alive. Children clung to the adults, whimpering and crying, while most of the women held the children while tears rolled down their own faces. We got as close as we could, trying to remain out of sight. There was a large jumble of bushes nearby. We hid behind them so whoever it was couldn't see us. I peeked out from behind the bush to see if I could see their captors. What I didn't expect to see were two figures that looked about seven feet tall, had very long arms, broad shoulders, and enormous hands. They looked like they were once men, but now their faces appeared to be cut in half, with the lower jaw hanging and had protruding tusks from their lower jaws. Their veins bulged from their arms and legs of their oversized bodies. The creatures looked no longer human except for the top half of their heads. I looked around, but it looked like there were only two of them. One of them had a woman in its grasp. She looked to be unconscious. The monster raised its free hand up, and grabbed and ripped the top half of the woman's head off, leaving her resembling the other victims we found. As I was about to lean down to whisper to the guys to peek up, one of the creatures turned its head in my direction. I could have sworn I made eye contact with it. I immediately ducked down, and Brian looked at me. What did you see? Is it bad? He asked. I couldn't even make out the words. I just pointed in the direction of the creatures. Brian carefully peeked over the bushes. His eyes grew wide with fear, and he quickly ducked back down. What the hell is that? He said as the blood drained from his face. We have to get out of here now, he whispered as loudly as he could without being heard. We have to help those people, I argued. If we help them, we are all dead, he said, even though you could tell it pained him. Can't we pull back and form a plan first? He was right, and I knew it, so reluctantly I gave in. 
Let's go, I ordered, urging them to move back. So we all quickly and quietly started to make our way back to the trucks to reassess the situation and figure out what to do next. Once we were back at the trucks, we all huddled behind one of them, and Brian said, I think we need to wait until daylight to go back. If we tried to go back now, there's no telling what those things will do. We all nodded in agreement and decided to camp out at the trucks until dawn, and we'd all take shifts, watching to make sure those monsters didn't follow us back. I volunteered to take the first shift. It was about an hour and a half in when I heard rustling in the trees from the direction we had come from. What? How? There's no way they could have found us. A few seconds later, one of those creatures came out from behind the trees, then another, and then another. There were six of them in total. They each had a different look about them, but were relatively the same type of creature. Then another one emerged from the tree line. This one looked way more human than the rest of them, but his face was covered by a bear skull, and he wore a long black cloak and a hood. I knew I needed to wake everybody up, and we had to make a run for it. I snuck my way back to where everyone was asleep, and I tried to wake them all up without being too loud. They could tell why I was waking them, and were immediately ready and alert. We have to find somewhere to hide. We can't stay here, or those things will find us. We had to hurry and think of somewhere to go before those things and their leader found us. I immediately thought back about the book I had read earlier this week, and how there was one part about the curse that I hadn't read about. We need to go to the library. I have an idea of how to deal with these things. The library wasn't far from where we were at, and it always stayed unlocked, because in a small town most doors stay unlocked. So we made a run for the library and went in through the back door. I frantically searched around for the book. It was dark, but I could see well enough to navigate the library. I finally found the book after what felt like an eternity. I turned to the section that talked more in depth about the curse. The author talked about the very creatures we were seeing, and their leader who went by the name Ignite. It's said that they are fueled by Mammon, the demon of greed, and those six monsters are supposed to be the six Molly Maguire members that were involved in the murder of Alexander and the assault of Father Daniel. It didn't explain who Ignite is supposed to be. It did say, however, that the way to potentially break Father Daniel's curse was to somehow lure the creatures into a secluded place and set them on fire. Well, how are we going to be able to do that, Paul? Mark asked as he was also reading the book. I don't know, but we have to try. Or else it'll all just keep getting worse and worse. So we sat there all night, conjuring up a plan to lure those demons to their death. We decided that I would be the one to get their attention and have them chase me up into the landfill. And once they're inside, I'll run back out and help the rest of the men set fire to everything inside 
hopefully causing it to collapse, trapping them all in there for eternity. As day began to break, we went out and gathered matches and gasoline, and then headed straight for the landfill. We went to take a look inside, to find where my escape route would be, and how we would be able to block off the demons from getting back out. About ten feet into the landfill, there's a natural pillar where I'll be able to turn around and run back as soon as I lead all the demons in. Once we had everything set up and ready, all we had to do was wait until nightfall. In the meantime, we headed back to the station to prepare ourselves for whatever the outcome may be. We waited until about 7 p.m. and then started to head that way. And as we got closer, I had this growing pit of dread in my stomach. I was a bundle of nerves, and I just couldn't seem to calm myself down. The smell of smoke kept getting stronger as well, and that meant they were sacrificing more people, which meant we really had to hurry. We pulled up into the woods next to the landfill behind the cemetery, and we all slowly started to get out of our trucks. I needed to get myself together because everyone was counting on me. We started making our way into the woods and walked quietly until we got to the clearing. We hid behind the same bushes, and when I found a good opportunity, I walked out into the open and got their attention. It didn't take much for them to notice me and come running. I made a beeline straight for the landfill. The demons were hot on my trail. I could see the edge of the woods. I was getting close now. As soon as I exited the woods, I hightailed it into the landfill, the demons still chasing me. I could hear their snorting and growling as they one by one followed me into the landfill. And when the last one finally came in, the guys all hopped out from behind the trees and set everything on fire. Hey, where's Paul? Did he come out yet? Mark asked. Everyone shook their heads no. The thing was, I originally wasn't planning on running back out, but I didn't tell anyone that. As the fire grew and spread all throughout the mine, I quickly became weaker and weaker, breathing in the smoke. The demons could sense that, too. They had begun to surround me, making grunting and hissing sounds. I didn't have the strength to fight back or defend myself. I laid down and awaited death. I felt one of them wrap their giant hand around me, lifting me up, then bringing the other hand up to my head. Then everything went black. Everyone was waiting outside, but I wasn't coming. I was gone. I'm going to try and look for him. Brian said, panicked, as he started to make his way into the mine, when everything collapsed, causing the entrance to be blocked off. You could hear the demons screaming in agony. Once the sun started to rise, the screams slowly started dying down. It seemed that the curse had been broken, and there was an immediate change. 
the temperature started to drop. The air didn't feel as heavy, and everything seemed to be at peace once more. But peace never came to Centralia. The fires beneath the earth continue to blaze. Thanks to Hannah Dean for this week's story. Thank you for joining us to explore Centralia, Pennsylvania and its burning history. Tune in next week as we discuss another terrific location. I'm Carmen Carrion. Remember, you can send me suggestions or stories of haunted places to my email, carmencarrion at gmail.com or follow me on Twitter at Carmen Carrion. Be sure to check out EerieCast.com for more terrifying podcasts. Until next time, be safe out there until I see you at our next destination. Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes, so doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress instead of perfection. You don't have to give up carbs or anything. And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M dot com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for a hundred healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold.